Welcome to Fashion Forum, a podcast brought to you by the British Fashion Council. I'm Caroline Rush, Chief Executive. Today we bring you a series of conversations highlighting the relationship between the creative industries, celebrating not only fashion designers, but also the broader creative community, all of whom play a vital role in our industry's culture and reputation, promoting British creativity on a global scale. Hello, it's Horal Kasimi, Creative Director at Kasimi and Director and President of Sharjah Art Foundation and the Africa Institute in Sharjah. I'm delighted to share with you my episode of Fashion Forum, the podcast from the British Fashion Council, which features a conversation between myself and a dear friend, artist and filmmaker, John Akamfra, discussing social responsibility in the art and cultural field and how it can relate to fashion. First of all, thank you for joining me, John. Uh, For those who aren't familiar with your history, you're a founding member of the Black Audio Collective in 1982, and that was in response to the, uh, the collective was formed in response to the Brixton riots in 1981. But before that, your journey into the visual arts came via the fashion world. Can you tell us more about that time, what it's like to be part of it, and how it inspired you in your journey? Uh, Oh, thank you very much for firstly inviting me. Uh, And secondly, for thinking that I might have anything of interest to say (laughs) in this forum. Uh, I hope I don't disappoint. Um, I mean, I think most people who know of my work think about it as um, in the field of filmmaking or militant cinema or the art world. Um, And that's all true, but actually... Uh, one of the spurs, the catalyst for me being involved in this world at all, um, came from fashion. Um, I grew up at the bottom of the King's Road uh, in, in London, West London, in Chelsea. And in the mid-70s, a shop suddenly appeared at the end of Chelsea called The World's End, appropriately enough, bombed out, slightly kind of scuzzy looking in those days. Um, And the shop was called Sex. Now, I mean, it's difficult now to get people to understand just how significant uh, this shop set up by Vivian Westwood and Malcolm McLaren was not just in West London, but across the world. Um, Because it provided a kind of semiotic charge to that space, you know. Um, And you went through it. I mean, for instance, if you were on a bus uh, in 11 or 22 coming from Fulham or uh, Putney and you hit that part of the New King's Road and you were on the bus with people, you'd notice how without fail everyone on the bus will turn when they got to the shop to look at it, you know? Um, And I was always struck by that. I was struck by that semiotic charge, that power that the shop had. And of course, when you went inside, you were uh, amazed at what you saw. It just didn't seem like anything of this world, you know? Um, So I think at some point, 75, 6, that shop started to to feel almost like um, uh, an iconic object 
worth striving to attain in some way. I don't know how, but I, I knew that it had something to do with me wanting to do things, quote unquote, creative, you know. Um, and it wasn't that long afterwards that I got a job on the first black glossy mag in London. Um, as an assistant fashion editor. Actually, it was just a gopher's job, but they gave it a fancy title, which, to be honest, I didn't mind because it made it seem like I was doing something important. Um, and I think in the summer of either 77 or 78, I can't remember exactly which one now. I know it was before I went to do my A-level, so I must have been quite young. Um, I worked on this magazine. Uh, and... Everybody on it had the same sort of dedication. You know, they wanted um, this magazine to make a difference in the world. They wanted it to change things. They wanted it to be a radical break with the past and the ways in which um, the worlds of fashion and culture had dealt with people of color, you know. Um, and those sentiments, those ideas stayed with me. They became formative, if you will. Um, and I took them as baggage, literally as accoutrements and garments and sartorial wares into, um, into uh, studying uh, culture and then finally ended up making films as part of the collective. So it's, it's an unspoken presence in my life. That makes me think of um, uh, Stuart Hall's representation in the media where he talks about signifying practices, uh, practices mm. that are involved in the production of meaning and those mm. meanings becoming widespread because ultimately it involves the question of power. So who has the power and what channels to circulate with meanings to whom? And do you think that was a push also an idea to own a magazine that was looking at black culture, black fashion, and then later on with the black audio collective coming together. Put it this way, these were, these were conceptual leaps um, of the imagination, certainly. They were ideological and cultural leaps into new spaces. And they were leaps that were uh, animated by the backstory, the backdrop, you know. So put it this way, it was, if you were growing up in the 70s in this country, um, nobody needed to tell you that you were marginal or an outsider. Nobody needed to tell you that. There were visual, iconic representations of that fact, yeah? So if you were, uh, for instance, to pick up a magazine uh, in, in a newspaper shop, the one thing that marked it was the absence of your presence. <laughs> you were nowhere in sight. There were occasional forays of people of color into what the wider cultural spaces of television, the cinema, you know, and so on. Um, but inevitably, they were singular figures or, you know, occasional figures. There weren't really that many people at all. The, the odd kind of newsreader uh, appeared at some point. That was it. You know, so the, the, what Stuart was talking about um, in that essay, the, the signifying essay, uh, and the point he was trying to make about 
the need to push for certain kinds of representations in which questions of self are foregrounded, in which you become um, the agent of your own kind of history and culture and so on, were absolutely critical. In fact, you know, they were the central points of your life, you know, um, certainly of mine when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s. Um, and they were absolutely central to the setting up of something like the Black Audio Film Collective. I mean, the thing to remember is that at that time, uh, I'm talking the mid, early to mid 80s now, when we set up Black Audio Film Collective, um, we had gone around the country um, because once we decided to do this, we kept hearing of other collectives which were uh, uh, emerging all across the country, you know, whether Birmingham or Nottingham or Wolverhampton, Manchester, you know, um, kids of colour, roughly the same age. In other words, most of us born between 57 and 61, who had all reached pretty much adult age in the 70s, in the early 70s, all began to feel as if they had this need to establish a presence in the society that they lived in because they, it was clear that no one understood who you were. It was clear that the wider culture didn't understand you, hadn't made plans for your presence, had no idea how to accommodate any of your possible interests, you know, um, what it could mean to be a hybrid figure, being both black and British. I mean, none of these were anything that the culture felt like it was prepared for. You know, um, and slowly it started to dawn. Started it started to dawn on us that these are um, matters of cultural strategy that we would need to inaugurate ourselves. Nobody was going to do it for you, um, and and that if you wanted the space for cultural renewal, it had to start with a kind of birthing of your own identity in a way. Um, and so a lot of effort then went into that. And inevitably, you know, this is really the important point, you know, um, matters of signature and presence, in, in, you know, the ways in which you announce your identity relies heavily on these gestures, these signatures and, um, of identity. And in that style, the sartorial and style are absolutely critical. You know, so we weren't, it wasn't like, I, I mean, I think to put it another way, um, when people usually talk about cultural formation and they talk about the emergence of identities, it is assumed that this is a kind of pure happening, uh, which is political or <laughs> <laughs> or structural, as if those political and structural things are divorced from the everyday, you know, the everyday of what you wear, what you look like, how you cut your hair, you know. Um, but actually, you know, it's the everyday which will then inevitably make up the elements that will, will construct this so-called identity, you know. So these political cultural transformations were not divorced from the sartorial. We're not divorced from questions of style or questions of presence, if you like, you know? Um, they were kind of bound up with each other in a way. 
Um, I recently read an interview in the FT where you spoke about ordinary blackness. Do you think that mm. in times in our respective fields, we've reached a point in our careers where um, our views and are taken into consideration and respected, and we tend to have these discussions around race and, and diversity amongst our peers, but we need to interact more with everyday people who may not be involved or interested in visiting galleries, cultural spaces, uh, listening to podcasts. So what steps do you think should be made to make these conversations more inclusive? I think that this is a kind of threefold um, thing, really. Um, uh, the everyday blackness that I'm talking about is to do with you know the, the 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 lives of the majority of people of color you know and the lives of majorities are inevitably always the same they're not touched by greatness necessarily you know it's it's not endowed with great wealth or you know and so on but many of the insights which will become the formative ones for society inevitably sort of begin in that space, you know, the space of the everyday and the, and the ordinary. Um, and I just felt recently, especially given the spate of killings, um, you know, that I wanted to return to that space, you know, again, because, you know, when you think about it, it's not, it's very rare that it's a, a John O'Comfrey or a Stuart Hall or a Grace Bonner who gets gunned down by police officers in these ways. It's, it's, you know, usually anonymous people of color, you know, going about their work or usually non-work, um, trying to eke out a living, who, who encounter this violence and these disaster moments, you know. Um, so it seems to me that there's an ethical turn that one needs to make, which is, which involves acknowledging that this is the case, right? But also then embracing that space oneself and trying to figure out how it could come into your practice, how it could inform um, the ways in which you're working, you know? Um, so that when I look at the work of someone like, let's say, Grace Bonner, you think, oh, wow, you know, because you can see immediately, you can see the ways in which she's tapping into um, a kind of everyday, ordinary blackness of the 70s and trying to somehow formulate uh, an aesthetic out of, you know, the sartorial regimes of that everyday. Um, I'm trying to do similar kinds of work myself. Now, those are two things, but at the same time, there is still this general ethical and political move that we need to make, which involves trying to then make sure that people whose lives and, and ideas and, and attitudes are somehow informing the works that we're making that end up in these elite institutions have some access to those institutions, right? That they know that these institutions exist firstly, and two, that those institutions acknowledge the value and importance of having them in those spaces. You know, and three, that when they encounter these works, they feel as if it has something to do with their lives. Now, these are kind of important questions um, uh, now, especially because you will see in the next 18 months, 
a range of works coming to the fore about climate change or you know, Black Lives Matter, uh, COVID crisis, you know, all of these will make its way, right, into the art world, into the fashion world, into, you know, the cultural sphere in general, right? And by the time it got there, thousands of very ordinary people, black, white, you know, would have died, um, given up their lives for struggles that they would pay for by arrest and imprisonment, you know, all kinds of things would have happened, right? And it seems to me that when it gets into that space, the space of the, the, the catwalk or the, the art exhibition, it's incumbent on the people who are making these moves to, to, to figure out how that work relates to where it's come from, you know? Um, now, I, and I don't think it's too much to ask for from either artists, fashion designers, cultural practitioners, call it what you will. It's not too much to ask the people who make sure that there's some traffic <laughs> between where their works end up and where they start. Some, some dialogue and traffic between the two. Um, I don't think that that's a problem. Well, no, that's not true. That is a problem. <laughs> If it wasn't a problem, we, we would not have it as an issue. But the fact seems to me to be this. Um, the ethical conundrum of trying to figure out who we're talking to, um, whose lives we're, we're, we're basing things on, and so on. The ethical conundrum of having that and then not having those people have access to it is important to acknowledge at the very least that seems to me to be the starting point you know to say that we we feel that there's a problem if we have a, a, a cultural sphere in which the energy vitality livelihoods histories identities of people who don't normally go into those spaces are being represented um we feel that's a problem if those people don't have a, a kind of um connection with that space I, I think i think that's fair enough i think it's fair enough to acknowledge that that's the case if that makes sense it's a very convoluted way of putting it but i, I hope you understand what i'm trying to say anyway you know my background and my um, work in biennials for the last 18 years and for me mm. like a, a biennial is an exact model of having um uh, everything set out for the public and uh, being inclusive so um, having these conversations in a dialogue that's open to passers-by, uh, it's not a ticketed entry. Um, I was very much interested in having these, these conversations and it also makes me think again about the power of, of representation and who has the power to do something and make a change. Um, we recently were together in Lahore for the Lahore yes. I curated the second version of and I think for me it was really important to again, look at the idea of what the stereotype of Pakistan is and how it was so important that I had this opportunity to go there and not only break down the stereotypes, but also introduce the audiences in Lahore to something that we have the privilege of access to, which is our friendships and our work together. And how that conversation um, that's still coming out of that exhibition is so important, looking at histories of colonialism, looking at histories of partition. Um, so for me, I think um, 
having those kind of platforms are really important. You know, I took over the label uh, that my brother founded, Kasimi, uh, after his passing. Mm. And for him, it was very important to talk about the Middle East, talk about politics and where we come from. And he showed that in his uh, T-shirt, the Don't Shoot T-shirt, which was mm. um, looking at the civil war in Beirut in the 80s, as well as um, his collaboration with War Child. So again, it's how you can take responsibility to talk about a subject that hasn't really had a, a start and an end. I mean, there's always children in war. There's always this uh, uh, horrible situation happening in, in Lebanon, but in the Middle East in general. So um, those kind of conversations are really important to continue having. You know, the really um, what is so interesting for me um, knowing you now and being friends with you is also acknowledging that actually I knew your brother first before I met you and that it was really through Harlid uh, that, that we met. And what's fascinating for me, uh, given the fact we're talking about cultural impact and social responsibility, was the context in which Harlid and, and, and I met. You know, um, I was a, a massive chain smoker then. This was maybe about 12 years ago, I think. I was a massive chain smoker then. <laughs> Um, and already they had brought in these rules that said you couldn't smoke in your offices and your studios. And so uh, we would go down, I would go downstairs to um, to smoke. And then this young man, very, very good looking young man would turn up. Um, also a massive chain smoker. <laughs> so, so our day was structured around leaving our studios to go downstairs to have a cigarette and inevitably encountering a each other because we by then synchronized our kind of addiction to the point where we needed a cigarette at the same time. Um, and there were obviously always moments of breaks for reflection between works. And so we would get talking and inevitably we, we started to talk about politics and cultural change. And I mean, this was before I even knew he was a fashion designer. You know, I knew he was doing something cultural upstairs, but I had no idea. <laughs> It was into fashion at all. Um, and we spoke about a range of stuff, you know, Malcolm X and, you know, radical Islam. You know, I mean, just about everything. And then slowly it started to dawn on me that this, these conversations were reflections of his own work. <laughs> and so when I found out he was a fashion designer, I mean, that was complete. In a way, it was like a kind of heart back to my teenage years to when I encountered West, Vivian Westwood's shop, you know, because in a way, on the whole, most fashion that you come across, um, you're not aware of it as uh, the product of uh, radical political gestures, you know, maybe a Catherine Hannah occasionally, or, you know, you're not aware of this subtext that sort of informs, unless people emblazon it on a t-shirt or something, you, you don't, you know. And, and the, the stuff Kali was doing at the time didn't have that sort of situationist, you know, uh, sloganeering aspect to it. So you would never necessarily have guessed. But somehow when you looked at it, when I suddenly saw what he was doing, you could see ways in which the political intersects with all kinds of work. Because it wasn't so much the fact that he had words, it was the combinations of styles of materials from different parts of the world, um, 
the the elevating of um, quote unquote uh, cultural apparel from different parts of the world, especially you know South Asia and the Middle East. You know, you suddenly thought, oh, okay, these are political gestures. You know, I mean, it was it was these sartorial combinations of uh, of styles and genres of the Sartoro from different parts of the global south, usually parts which were not seen to be fashion spaces or fashion spaces from which what emerges can only be exotic. You know, um, he was trying to, to uh, almost normalize the exotic, to bring it into mainstream um, design in ways that were, uh, yeah, I think, retrospective one could say we're radical we're political you know um and i I miss his passing very deeply i have to say um we all do uh thank you for those words john it's very special um um i i'd like to um move the conversation a little bit um, mm-hmm. to talk about uh, a new limited edition print you did um, in support of the Free Deutsche Bank Emerging Curators Fellowship for the UK-based uh, Black and uh, People of Color Emerging Curators. Um, I thought it was really interesting, the choice of, of what you selected to do for this. So can you tell us more about it, uh, the edition, which is titled Our Skin is a Monument? Yeah, I mean, it it started around about the time uh, when the the conversation about monuments coming down started. I I started to feel that I needed to do work around questions of monumentality or what constitutes monumentality, you know. Um, And by the time the slave trader Edward Colston's statue came down uh, in Bristol last year. I knew where I thought the work should go. And what was interesting about the the statue coming down uh, of uh, Edward Colston was that immediately people who um, were in, let's say, positions of power started to defend it's right to be in the town center of Bristol. And to do that, they started to invoke the legal. It's like, well, it's illegal to take down uh, statues like this, you know, because it doesn't matter whether he's a slave trader or not, you know, he belongs there because he's part of our past. (laughs) It was a way of apportioning a specifically sacred value to the monument as stone, as object. Whereas actually, the thing that Colston did was to produce a whole strata in this society of living monuments, people who only exist. I mean, this is the paradox, right? Or this is not the the surreal thing, put it that way. Edward Colston, who died, was a slave trader, imported slaves, you know, a serial trafficker. Let me even call him a slave trader. That makes it sound like something nice. He was a serial trafficker, right, of human beings. Um, 
to from one part of the world to the other, um, involving untold suffering and misery. But apart from that, you know, there are people who now live in Bristol, the city in which he stands, you know, he stood rather, supreme, supremely innocent. Um, there are people who live there of colour who are there as a direct result of what he did, right? Whose lives are uh, as complicated as they are because of what Colston did. So there's a sense in which they are themselves monuments, right? But unacknowledged ones of the same history. And it's, it just felt to me as if, you know, the, the severing of the ethical, is it right to have a statue of a serial trafficker in the center of Bristol? The severing of that ethical move from the legal one, well, it's wrong to remove it, created a problem that needed to be addressed. And so the work was trying in a way to, to highlight to, uh, firstly to myself and then to other people, like, hey, you know, wait a minute. <laughs> when we talk about monuments, it's not just stone. <laughs> There are all sorts of, um, should we say, epidermal traces of this past, um, which are in our midst and uh, are quite visible. And so the work was about that. And it's it's also like all societies, um, and the one that I happen to have grown up in, in particular, and live in, um, have icons, symbols, narratives which inevitably come with a whole set of assumptions about uh, the world in which we live in and, and are usually over-determined and organised by a set of hierarchies, you know, these narratives. And, and the narratives are, are with us. They are, you know, they organise uh, the spaces of culture, <laughs> of the economy, state provision, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera, and provide counter cartographic alternatives, new routes, new maps by which one navigates one ways through society. And you know, we're not. It doesn't feel to me as if we're having to make an argument in, you know, uh, in 2020 for the same sorts of things that we were in the 1980s. I mean, and I wouldn't say that, you know, because. Partly in saying that, we deny ourselves a certain kind of agency, you know. Um, the work we did made a difference. We succeeded. We changed things. But things are not the same, you know. Um, but there are, there are things still to do, you know. Um, and the reason there are things to do still is why organisations like Black Lives Matter exist. If there weren't things to do, they wouldn't exist. You know, um, that you see globally as well with younger generations means that there is this drive and thirst for change. And, um, you know, hopefully we'll see a lot more in the coming years as well. I've never, uh, not since the heady days of the 80s, come across so many younger artists who want to work as collectives. Right. Uh, that alone for me is a massive change uh, and a welcome change because it you know the minute people start wanting to collectivize their acts their activities you're in the space of the political <laughs> you know you're in the space of the cultural uh, 
of something um, important, seismic, about to to, to happen and, and to change. So I, I I'm I can't think of a better time to be to be a young creative uh, than now. It's just a magnificent period. There's so much to get your teeth into. There's so much, you know. Your words are very inspiring, especially to the younger generation to, you know, get get out there and, and be creative. And it's nice to see that there is some optimism as well with what's happening right now. Um, so thank you so much for joining me, John, and thank you for all your um, inspiring words and uh, and oh, beautiful words about Khaled, my brother. So, um, And uh, thank you to the BFC for having us on this podcast. Fashion Forum is a co-production between the British Fashion Council and In Talks With Productions. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, leave a review and share it with your friends. If you'd like to find out more and join the conversation on social media, then head to londonfashionweek.co.uk or at London Fashion Week. <laughs>